Well, it's uh, great to be with you this morning. Um, I was gone last week on a trip with my my oldest son, and uh, we had a great time, but uh, missed being with you last week, and um, it's always exciting to be back to worship with God's people, with you guys. I want to invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we began a new series in First uh, Peter, we're going to be looking at this through the summer into the fall, and uh, we're continuing uh, that today, looking at a really uh, beautiful and important passage in First Peter chapter 2. So if you would, if you're uh, here with us in person, or if you're at home watching online, I want to invite you to stand with me as we give our attention to God's Word. Let's Let's give our attention to God's word together in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Peter says this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, But in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this is God's word. It is completely true, and he gives us his word because he loves us. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray now that you uh, would enable us as your word says, to taste your goodness. Would we be reminded of who uh, we are and what you have done for us in Jesus, that we might be more fully the people you have called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. So this morning, as I said, we're continuing the series we began a couple weeks ago in First Peter. Uh, it's a book that is perhaps more relevant now than it has been in the last 1,800 years. As Christians, as everybody is living through uncertain times, 
First Peter is God's incredible guide for what it looks like to live with wisdom and grace when the world is dark, when the world is uncertain, when, when we are anxious and things are unclear. And so we've already seen in the first chapter that Peter begins by reminding us of our identity in Christ, that we are exiles, that no matter where we're from or where we live, we live as people who don't quite fit in. Uh, And then from there, he's gone to show kind of that that that's who we are. That's our DNA, our gospel DNA as Christians, which bears gospel fruit in lives of holiness. And this morning, he uh, continues in chapter 2. And what I want you to see is the good news that as we live as exiles, following God into lives of holiness in this world, the good news is this, you are not alone. We are in this together. I don't know if you remember this movie. One of my favorite movies, it was kind of one of our family movies growing up. Um, It's this movie, I think it came out in 1990, called My Blue Heaven with uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short. And Martin Short plays this kind of uptight FBI agent, and Steve Martin is a member of an organized crime family. He's a mobster, and he's from New York. And uh, he's been arrested or whatever, and he goes into witness protection, and they place him in suburban San Diego County. And he's a total fish out of water. Everywhere he goes, he's making a scene. Um, and, uh, and he's just, he talks about how it's this great place to live, but he hates it. It's, it's horrible, and he feels so alone. And then one day, he's, as he's out shopping, he runs into a guy that he knew, knew who, who was another mobster. You know, another guy who's entered Federal Witness Protection Agency. And, uh, and Steve Martin's saying, I just feel so alone. And this older mobster says, you are not alone. <laughs> you are really not alone. And that's what Peter is saying to us in this passage. You are really not alone. This morning as we gather for worship online or here in person, I want to remind you as co-conspirators in the family of God, in God's kingdom program, that you are not alone. We are in this together. We are exiles living in a place that is not really our home, seeking to bear the gospel fruit of holiness, living lives that are different. And the reality is that we will never live out that lifestyle on our own. If you were to immigrate to another country, another culture on your own, assimilation is just a matter of time. If we are going to live as distinct people in this world, we cannot do it as individuals. We will simply be assimilated. The only way to live the sort of holy lifestyle, distinctive lifestyle that God calls us to is by doing this together. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2. Because I want you to see what this passage tells us about the reality that we are in this together. So the first thing you got to see in this passage is that we are called to be together. As we live out our kingdom calling in this place and time, we do this together. We do this as a community. There's an African proverb that says, If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, take someone with you. Common sense, I guess. Peter says it like this. He says, This is who we are. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are the people of God. And these all point to our collective identity as the church. 
what, what Peter's saying is we don't relate to God only or primarily as individuals. Peter is applying these terms for the nation of Israel collectively to the church, the Christian church, the New Testament church. But what I really want to do is kind of zoom in on what he says in verse 5. Peter says in verse 5, he says, all of you, and, and you have to understand when he says all of you, he's saying all y'all, all of us plural, like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. Together, we are as individuals being built into a spiritual house. And, and he's saying two things when he says that. First, he's saying that, um, you know, there's a sense like we are being built like a like a brick wall, brick by brick, we are being built into a house, into a, a structure together. God is building a house, not out of bricks, but out of, out of us. And, um, you know, they didn't use two by four construction, I suppose, in, uh, in, in Peter's time. But it, I, I, I suspect that even if they did, he would have still said, uh, use this metaphor of building out of stones or bricks because there's an interdependent nature to a wall that's built out of, out of bricks or stone. Uh, you might be the brick in the middle of the wall, which means you are supported by all of the stones beneath you. And it means that you are there supporting all of the stones above you. And so if you get pulled out of that wall, it's going to affect everything around you. Every brick holds up those above it and support, or supported by those below it. If you shake, the stones above you shake. If the stones below you shake, you are shaken. If they fail, you fail. If you fail, they, if you fail, they fail. And so what he's describing is a way of relating together that isn't just like a, a bag of marbles where you, you throw a, bag, a bunch of marbles in the bag and they're all in there bumping up against each other, but essentially independent. He's describing a, uh, an, an interconnected wall, a, um, a way of living where what happens to one of us affects all of us. It's a, it's a completely different way of thinking about Christianity, isn't it, than the way that American Christians tend to think. Most of us think of ourselves as our primary frame of reference, but Peter's talking about sharing life together. He's talking about sharing our joys and our sorrows. He's talking about, you know, making decisions when we're faced with a big life decision that we, that we, that we ask for counsel, that we don't just make a decision on our own, on our own. He's talking about sharing our emotions. He's talking about sharing our money. He's talking about sharing practical help. He's talking about living life together. And the reality is, I think that this is both a comfort and a support or a comfort and a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge because other people depend on us, but it's a comfort because we depend on, on others. It goes, it goes both ways. It goes both ways. When you're struggling, we are here uh, to support you. You are not alone. But the second thing that this metaphor of being living stones implies is that um, he, he says that we are living stones that are being built together into a spiritual house, into a, into a temple is what he's saying. And so what he's saying is that it's as we are built together, what do you think the chances of me getting hit with a pine cone are um, going to be during this? <laughs> 
as we are being built together as living stones into a spiritual house, that is where God makes his presence known. It's the Holy Spirit indwelling the people of God corporately, where we know his power and his presence and his glory. Um, there is one place in the New Testament, in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says that you as an individual are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But everywhere else, he, uh, Peter, Paul, the New Testament writers make the point that it's corporately that we are the presence, the temple of, of God together. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. And so what this means is that to the degree... To the, degree, to, to the degree that we are built into each other's lives together, that is what God inhabits. Um, it's to the degree that we are experiencing community, that we are doing life together, that we experience the presence and the power, the transforming power of God in our lives. You know, the, the question, I think, maybe for, for, for Americans, Westerners, those of us who tend to have a very individualistic view of life, it comes up, why does it matter? I mean, why can't I just relate to God on my own? And C.S. Lewis probably answers that better than anybody. In The Four Loves, he has this place where he talks about the reality that um, C.S. Lewis had this tight group of friends with J.K. Rowling, and, or not J.K. Rowling, uh, Tolkien is who I'm trying to think of, the other British writer. Um, and some others, the Thinklings, the Inklings. And uh, when one of them died, Lewis imagined that he was now going to have like a greater friendship with those who remained. That, um, that those, because he didn't have to share his friends with as many people, that he would have a greater sense of friendship with them. But he found that the opposite actually happened. And he, he, he says this, he says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is gone, I actually have less of Ronald as well. What he's getting at is the reality that none of us is our fullest or best or truest self in isolation. We need a community to grow and develop. We need others to draw the best out of ourselves. And the reality is that that's hard. You know, it's often in community that things get difficult. And that's precisely the reality. Uh, that, that's precisely the point um, have you ever had an experience that something like uh, something like this happens where somebody has said something, they made a comment to you and you're hurt or you're offended and you mull it over in your head and you're so frustrated at this person. Why did they do this to me? And then maybe you mention it to your spouse or somebody like that and they kind of, they say, well, maybe this is what they meant. And they just kind of twist that comment that was so hurtful in a different light. You go, oh gosh, I didn't even see it in that way. So often it's in community. It's the, it's the perspectives of others that sharpen us, that change us, that transform us. We can't see ourselves perfectly or completely, and so we need each other. And it's so often the case that it's in the struggle of community 
that we grow and that we experience God's power in our lives. It's as we show up for each other. It's when we catch each other doing good, as we, as we affirm each other, as we thank each other, as we are together that we experience the love and transforming power of God in our lives in real, tangible waves, ways. You are not alone. We are in this together. That's what Peter's saying, but the tragedy and I feel like we have to just address the elephant in the room here. You know, we know we're living through this time where being together is, is like the source of the problem, um, where we are isolated. There's, a, there's an even greater tragedy. There was a report that came out this week, the Barna Group, uh, who surveys religious practices of mostly Americans, I think, uh, reported this week that in the last four months during the COVID-19 crisis, one in three practicing Christians has stopped going to church. And just to be clear, let me, let me, I don't mean not physically present. I'm, I'm, I'm making no distinction between whether you're watching online or whether you're here with with us physically present this morning. Uh, By their own admission, one third of Christians have stopped going to church at a time when we are more isolated than we've ever been, at a time when the um, circumstances lead us to fear and anxiety as much as they ever have, at a time when we need as much as we ever have to be rooted in God's love and his power and his grace, a third of us have pulled away from the church. There's another interesting thing that Barna reported in this, in this study. They found that of those one-third Christians who have stopped going to church, these same people are more likely to report being overwhelmed with anxiety. They're more likely to report feeling bored all the time, feeling insecure, and feeling disconnected from God. So in other words, the data is actually reporting in a statistical way what Peter is saying is true in a, in a biblical or theological sense, that we actually experience God's grace through God's community, through his church, that those who are resilient in life, those who get up when life knocks them down, aren't people with more grit or willpower, are not people who are just better at life. Those who are resilient are people who cling to the church, to the people of God, God is present to us as he builds us together as living stones into a spiritual house. So let me just talk for a second about what that might actually look like. Because again, the elephant in the room is that togetherness is part of the problem. And and isolation is part of the solution to uh, the pandemic that we're all going through. Um, You know, we're we're all experiencing, uh, perhaps in different ways, a, a different level of comfort with being together. And so over the last couple weeks and months... Ashley and I have kind of tentatively reached out to people and said, hey, you know, would you feel comfortable getting together? Uh, do you want to come over for dinner? We can sit on the patio, what, however you want to do this a couple weeks ago. So we reached out to the Merwins and we said, hey, why don't you guys come for dinner? And it was beautiful because uh, Camila Merwin says, well, why don't you come over to our house this time? And then she said, she followed up with, do you want, do you want us to invite anybody else? Um, how can we provide a place to be together? 
There's a million ways that we can do this, even without being physically together. Sending texts, sending emails, calling people, saying thank you, being an encourager. Uh, There are countless ways that each of us can be involved in this task of being built together as living stones, even if for any good reasons we're not comfortably physically gathering together. This is who we are. We are the house that God is building. He calls us together. But the second thing I want you to see in this passage is the goal. What is the, what is the goal of being kind of called into this life together? The second thing that we see in this passage is the goal of being called together is that we worship together. Verse 9 Peter says, but you, are a royal, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All of these descriptors of life together. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The goal of our calling is worship. The goal of our calling is praising or proclaiming the excellencies, the glory, the majesty of the God who calls us together, proclaiming his goodness because of who he is. And this is, uh, I, I think, something that would be really easy to gloss over or miss, but this is so important because this is so countercultural in the world that we live in. In the world that we live in, we so often think that the goal, sort of the outcome of our success, is self congratulation or self promotion. But what Peter's saying is that the, the goal of community, the goal of togetherness, the goal of accomplishing what God has called us to do here, results in this outward-facing posture that is to glorify God instead of be self-absorbed. For those who are called together to live as holy and joyful exiles in the world, our end isn't just navel-gazing, but rather a turning outward towards God who gives us our identity. And so we are called to be in this together in order to worship. Again, whether you're doing this in line, uh, online, in person, uh, whether, whether we're talking about worship in a corporate sense, in the, in the sense of gathered worship on Sunday morning, or as we are dispersed throughout the week, this is why we exist. Our identity in Christ finds its ultimate realization as we praise and as we worship God. And like I said, this is countercultural in the world that we live in. And yet I think it's also deeply encouraging because I think we have a, a like a hunch that this is true, even though we don't know it most of the time. Um, we, ha- we have this sense that to truly enjoy something means to share it with someone else, to praise it to someone else. Um, you've, we've all had this experience, whether it's you know, going to a nice restaurant and you take a bite of this incredible meal and your first thought is to say to somebody else, you have to try this. Or if you find a great deal or you watch a great movie, you want to tell other people uh, how incredible it is. Or if you're reading a book that's beautiful or funny, you want to read this passage that you've just enjoyed to everybody who's sitting near you. True enjoyment always results in external praise as we experience the reality that God is building us up together, it is, it is right that we turn back and praise Him. 
we are called together and we worship together. But this leads us to the third thing that I want you to see in this passage, and that's the result, sort of, in some ways you could say almost the byproduct of our, of our life together. And that is that we are not just called together, we don't just worship together, but that we are on mission together. Peter keeps reminding us as we live as exiles, as we live out our gospel identity in this world, that everything we do has a sort of a missiological, a missionary impact on the world around us. And so look, look at verse 12. He concludes this passage with these words. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, do you see the tension in what he's saying? He's saying that as you live out, as we live out our identity corporately as, as God's church, other people are going to pay attention. And it's going to result in two things that have to both be there. They're going to see your lives, and they're going to call you evildoers and glorify God. Uh, they will speak against us, these evildoers, and they will glorify God as, uh, when, when he returns. What he's saying is if we are living together as the people of God, unbelievers, they're, they're going to misunderstand us. Of course, they're going to uh, speak ill of us. They will not understand why we are the way that we are. They will slander us. And at the same time, some of them will find our lives attractive and put their trust in Jesus. We have to see this. It's a both and because the reality is that it's easy to do one or the other. <laughs> you know, some of us think that when we are offending people, it's a sign that we're actually right. Others of us, uh, we live lives that maybe they're attractive but because we're so hesitant to offend others, we don't say anything about the gospel, and so our neighbors just think we're like nice people with strange hobbies. Or maybe increasingly, we do neither of these. We're neither attractive nor offensive. Um, we're just so blah that nobody really pays attention or takes any notice. But notice that Peter is assuming both of these things are going to be happening. If we are living out our identity, if we are living holy lives, if we're in this together as a church, people will take notice and they will say, you know, bad things about us. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But they will also, some people will be attracted to Jesus and put their trust in him. So I think that begs the question, how are we doing? I mean, are we living those kinds of lives? Is that the way that we would characterize the the perception of the church at this time. And maybe a better question or a more important question is to ask, how would we live that sort of a life? Like what would motivate us? What would give us the, the power for that sort of a lifestyle? Because that's, that's the real question. That's the real challenge is not to know the right thing, but to do the right thing. And the answer is peppered throughout this passage. Um, we get the sense as we read this passage, don't we, of God's deep affection for his people. Uh, you are a chosen race. You are God's chosen people uh, for his own possession, verse 9. Verse 10 says, Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Maybe the clearest we see this in this passage is in verse 5. Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. And then he says this, Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We live the sort of life Peter is talking about here because we have been made acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. He poured out his life in order to give us life. He died on the cross in order to pay for our death. He raised from the grave in order to show us what new life looks like and what, what, what awaits us, but to send his spirit to live in us and through us to enliven our lives. It is his life poured into us that enables us to live together, that animates our worship together, and that enables our missions to our mission together. Friends, the, one of the, the biggest lies that we have to contend with in the world that we live in is this idea that we can be the source of our own life. That we, being true to ourselves, will make us happy, content, successful, flourishing people. It's a lie. The idea that you just need to accept yourself is a lie. If it were true, we would all be doing a lot better than we are. But the secret of the Christian life is not that Christians somehow need to be, figure out how to become better at life than other people. The secret to the Christian life is that we have a source of life outside of ourselves. My life, your life, doesn't depend on myself or yourself. Jesus gave up his life to give us life. And that reality changes everything. It is the life of God flowing into me, into you, that enables us to be the people God has called us to be. I had a very tangible experience of that reality last week as... as um, Many of you know, last week I mentioned this that um, I took this father son trip with my oldest son, and uh, we were uh, five days in a canoe and in the back country in an incredibly rugged and remote uh, part of the country. And my whole goal for this week was to be with and, you know, just spend time with and pour into my, my oldest son. And I was excited about doing that, but also sort of questioning whether I had uh, what it would take to do that with my son for, for a week. Um, you know, I went into this pretty tired. Um, it was going to be a hard week, physically demanding. And yet I had one goal, to, which was to pour myself into my son. Uh, but how was I going to do that? And the reality was that in, in, in actuality, it was really easy. It was really easy because of what happened the moment we pulled up to our place where we were launching our canoes. We were doing this with a group, and one of the leaders, um, a guy named Jesse, we pulled into the parking lot, and before we've gotten out of the car, Jesse, who I've never met in person comes over and he says, hey, Bryce, I'm so glad you guys made it. And I was taken aback. He didn't say, like, are you Bryce? <laughs> he doesn't know who I am. But somehow he took the bold step of figuring out who I am and just 
welcoming me by name. And all week, it was like this guy's mission was to encourage me. And we'd go for a hike, and he would be right behind me, and he'd be like, asking me questions. He's like, what's it like to be a pastor? And what are the three things you wish other people knew about pastors? All week, he's encouraging me. And it made it so easy for me to pour myself into my son. Had I been there on my own, had I been there even with somebody who had not made it their mission to encourage me, I'm not sure it would have gone the same way, but it was easy to pour myself into him because somebody was pouring himself into me. And this is a picture of the gospel. You know, the, re- the reality of the gospel is that Jesus has given up his life to pour his life into you. But so often we experience that tangibly through other Christians, through the community of God's people, through the church. It's a tangible expression of the gospel that the one who gives his life up to fill us with life uses other Christians to bring that reality, to help us tangibly experience that reality. And so, friends, let me just finish by like acknowledging this reality. We are all, in one way or another, going through a difficult time. There's no sense in denying that. But the tragedy of what we're experiencing is not just the overt facts. The tragedy is that we are being pulled apart by the tragedy. And many of us are anxious. If the statistics are true, many of us are facing depression. We're discouraged. We're tired. And here's the truth. You cannot give yourself life. I mean, think about this. You cannot encourage yourself. It is impossible to be your own encourager. Somebody else has to encourage you. Somebody else has to give you life. The gospel tells us that God himself took on flesh. He took on your life. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. He was raised again to new life. He sends his spirit to live in us. And by his spirit, he is building us together into a spiritual house that we might know and experience his presence. And he has called us to live in light of that reality. This is who we are. He calls us to live together a life of worship and a life of mission. And he gives us to each other to be the hands and feet of Jesus for the world around us. And the only way we are going to do this is by doing it together. This is the good news, friends. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we pray that these words are written mostly in the indicative would be true of our own lives, that they would be true of our own experience, that as we, just as individualistic people prone to selfishness, uh, are tempted to withdraw, how much more so in this time? When the world is uncertain, we're, we're um, prone to protect ourselves. And yet, Jesus, you are calling us into something uh, bigger and greater. God, would you be at work in us? Would we know uh, the encouragement 
the life of Jesus through those seated around us this morning. Would you call us to more fully experience our togetherness? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.